We are in the second chapter of the book of James. If you have your Bibles, you can open to James chapter 2. And this is a really pivotal and difficult section of James. I'm going to read the section, and if you're familiar with it, you know why this is a difficult section. If you're not familiar with, with the book of James, you're going to hear James say some things that sound contrary to what you've been taught about how we're saved. But rest assured, the Bible does not contradict itself. Amen? The Bible does not contradict itself. It all harmonizes, and so there's answers to your questions today, and we'll discover those answers together. So James chapter 2, verse 14 James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, But you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Remember, we just came off a section where James was talking about the rich man coming into the assembly and the poor man and the rich man is shown favoritism and the poor man is told to go stand in the corner. And so he's launching into this section about, do you really have faith in Christ? Do you really have saving faith if, if this is your behavior? Can somebody just say, I have faith in Christ and have the right doctrinal words, but then live devoid of good works or live opposite of God's teaching? Is that a valid faith? The, the way that question is written in the Greek, can that faith save him? When you ask questions in the Greek, there's ways to do it that your listener knows you've already answered the question with a yes or a no. And in this case, the answer is no. Now, to be honest, the word that isn't in the Greek. There is a word for that in the Greek, and it's not here. And English translators put it there so 
that we can understand that there's something else going in the Greek. There's a definite article in front of the word faith, and it would just read funny to say, can the faith save him? It's a certain kind of faith. So they put the word that to draw attention to the point that James is making, which is there is a kind of faith that saves and a kind of faith that doesn't save. We affirm and we proclaim that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Let's get that clear. Nobody goes home today thinking their works save them. But nobody ought to go home today thinking they have saving faith in Christ and they have no works to prove that they have saving faith. All right, so we're not sending anyone out the the legalism doors and nobody goes out the libertine doors today. We are blocking off the exits. We want people with saving faith that produces good works. This has been the theme all through the book of James, that there's this wisdom from God and this wisdom from man. And the wisdom from God produces this kind of life, and the wisdom from man produces this kind of life. And that true saving faith ought to look like this, not like this. And so leading up to this this section, James has been in essence saying, you say your faith is in Christ, and you are trusting in His wisdom, not your own wisdom, not worldly wisdom, not carnal wisdom, but... Do you rejoice in trials knowing it will strengthen your faith in God? Or do you tend to easily fall into temptation in trials? Do you trust in God's wisdom or do you still cling to your own wisdom like the double-minded man? Are you humbly content with being rich in God's eyes, rich in spiritual things? Or are you boasting in your worldly riches or prestige? Do you seek honor before God or do you seek honor before man? Are you showing partiality or favoritism to the rich? So he's pointing out inconsistencies in our profession of faith versus the way we live out our faith. And that there shouldn't be these inconsistencies. We want to be whole like God. There's complete wholeness with God. And God is making us into His own image. We're made in His image, and because of the fall, we've become these inconsistent beings split between the the natural man and the regenerate new man, the born-again man in, in Christ. You say you have faith in Christ, but are you receiving the Word of God or do you get quick to speak? You speak your own ideas and you get angry when people don't bow to your superior ideas and philosophies. So they're tests. We're evaluating our faith in Christ. We have the right profession of faith, we have the right doctrinal statement on our website in our constitution and bylaws, but are you trusting in that faith and living it out? 
our church mission statement. We're all about Jesus. Are you all about Jesus? All completely about Jesus? Or is there whole sections of yourself that really aren't all about Jesus? You say, I adore Jesus by learning from Jesus. And then you go home and you forgot there's one more letter in the mission statement. So that we can love like Jesus. Love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. Yet as we're reading this section of text and we get to things that say, let's see, verse 20, but you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Ah, my knees buckled just having to say that in its scripture. You know, I've been trained not to say you're justified by works. We live in the default mode of our heart is being justified by works. Every religion, apart from Christianity, is here's my good works, here's my bad works. As long as the scales are heavier on the good works, I'm I'm in. And we know that's not the Christian gospel at all. And here's James saying, well, wasn't Abraham justified by works? Ah, It's hard to say, and he says it like three more times. Just in case you thought maybe he misspoke. Yet again, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Let me give you some context that I think will help you understand why he wrote these words, why the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these words. Let's let's get in our time machine. And instead of going all the way back to first century Palestine, let's go back to 1950 Bible Belt America. So, okay, get in your DeLorean, okay, and get up to 88 miles an hour or whatever it was, and there you go. Initiate the flux capacitor. We are in 1950s Bible Belt America. You get out of your DeLorean, and man, it looks good. It is clean and wholesome. Fresh coat of whitewash on everything. Boy, where do I know that word whitewash from? Jesus said, boy, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, dead men's bones on the inside. Not to say 1950s America was full of legalism and hypocrisy, but there were pockets, certainly. Cultural Christianity. Don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do. I'm good. You know, that's my standard of good. Everybody's happy with me. Everything's all purdy and, and, and looks nice and people know their Bible and they say the right things. Yet you start spending some time in that town and there's an undercurrent of hypocrisy, pride, legalism, looking down your noses at those who can't quite understand the Bible the way you do and can't quite live it the way you do. Half the town is keeping the law of God out of pride and the other half seems to be keeping it out of fear of being embarrassed. So they do their deeds of lawlessness in the dark. 
And I'm not just talking about the half that's afraid of being caught. I'm also talking about the half that's doing good things in public out of pride. Moralism doesn't change the heart. It doesn't save anyone. In comes the Big Tent Revival. The Big Tent, the evangelist comes into town, and he knows what's going on in these kinds of towns, because that's how he grew up. And he's preaching justification by faith. He's preaching John 3.16 every day. Amen. It's by faith. Whoever believes, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And for those the bottom of society who felt I'll never be good enough to get to heaven, they're overjoyed. They've never heard this message. All they've heard their whole life is you're wrong, everything you do is wrong, you'll never be good enough. Don't come to our church, you'll stain it. Or if you do, sit in the back, just like James is talking about. You go sit in, you go stand in the back and try not to get in the way. Try not to ruin our reputation in the community here. And revival breaks out because the gospel is glorious and it sets us free from that. And, and it's wonderful and it's spreading and, and the, that ugliness is being lifted from the town. And people are repenting left and right and giving their lives to Christ and it's a wonderful thing. And you get back in your time machine and you, you, you go back to the future Five, you decide, I'm going to go back, but I'm going to go back five years after the revival. And you go, you go back five years later, and the town is a disaster. People are just openly sinning out in the streets. And, and you're saying, what happened? That's not what the gospel was supposed to do. Well, the evangelist packed up the tent and went to the next town, and there was nobody there to disciple and legalism got replaced with libertinism. Li- liberty, false liberty. I'm now free to do whatever, and you can't judge me. Well, no, but there is someone who can. You, you forgot your judge. Yes, he's your savior, but he's also your Lord. They replaced God is my Lord, I don't need a savior. With God as my Savior, I don't need a Lord. He's got to be Lord and Savior. Well, that culture wasn't much different than the one Jesus came down into. Lawlessness wasn't running rampant in Palestine. Legalism and hypocrisy was the vice of the day. You don't hear Jesus saying, Woe to you, prostitutes and tax collectors. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. John the Baptist came in preaching the gospel of repentance. Jesus also preached the gospel of repentance. So repentance was still part of it. In fact, it is it. You need to turn from anything that 
separates us from clinging to God as our Lord and Savior. God expects us to trust and obey. He wants good works, but they need to come from the right heart motivation. Not out of pride and fear, but out of love. So James has to correct people swinging to the other end of the pendulum because Paul came in preaching justification by faith, justification by faith. Paul, the former Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees who understood legalism better than anyone else, has his dramatic conversion, and he's got to preach justification by faith. Justification by faith. It's not about your good works. It's about your faith. And maybe for the first time, some Jews who felt like they were outside the kingdom of God because Phariseeism had convinced them You'll never be good enough. Which is true. But the Pharisees thought they were good enough. And the rich thought they were good enough. And so if you were on the bottom of the social totem pole, this gospel of grace, this justification by faith, is music to your ears. You have access to the kingdom now. You've got honor in a honor-shame society where all you've had was shame. Nobody gave you honor or dignity or respect. You could now have the positions of leadership. Maybe even I can teach. We don't need the official rabbis trained in all the best rabbinical schools. You know, Harvard, Yale, Stanford. We don't need those people. So you throw the baby out with the bathwater and the pendulum swings the other way and James has to say, whoa, wait a minute. Yes, you're saved by faith, but what happened to your works? So he's correcting this end of the pendulum and Paul's correcting this end of the pendulum. Paul's correcting the legalists. James is correcting the libertines. Although even in Paul's teaching, he'll say, well, then if we're saved by faith, By grace, should we keep on sinning so that grace shall abound? He says, may it never be. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. James's letter is short and the teachings are are quick bursts, whereas Paul develops the theology more and gives us more time to be nuanced and think about all the different dangers. James is definitely addressing this letter to Jewish believers, mostly Jewish believers, who've clung on to justification by faith, except now they're ignoring works. And he's got to teach us where the works fit in. Same thing happened when Martin Luther preached during the Reformation. Here's a former Catholic priest. All he knew was God is angry with me because I can't keep the law perfectly. And then the glorious New Testament is made available to him. And he's like, where has this been all my life? God will save me based on Christ's perfect obedience and impute his righteousness to me? This is good news. No more indulgences. I don't need to pay my way out of heaven. 
Good news for the poor who have no money to pay indulgences. But this is entrenched into their society, so Martin Luther's got to preach hard and strong. I mean, he preached really hard. Like, almost over the top, his preaching of having to tear down that false teaching. And as the gospel sweeps through, a few years later, something terrible happens. Instead of clinging to justification by faith, and now my response in my heart, God, is to obey your law, these people are angry. And they go and they attack the church and the legalists. And they kill and destroy. And Martin Luther is like, what is going on? No! No! God didn't save you for this. That's not how we respond to the gospel. Some would say, I would rather have than the moral on the outside society where at least there's law and order and no anarchy and no chaos. But remember, Jesus came into that culture and said, this is ugly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. The alternative isn't libertinism, every, every man for himself, do whatever you want to do. Hey, God's going to save us anyway. And some would say, that is so scary that maybe we shouldn't even attempt to go there. And there are many today even who would like our country to just get back to moralistic, you know, everything looks good on the outside, but dead men's bones on the inside. That's not what God wants. He wants good on the outside and on the inside, but it's got to start with good on the inside. It's faith leads to salvation and good works. Faith leads to salvation and good works. So, James says, you say your faith is in Christ, but where are the works to justify your claim? Not where are the works to justify you in front of God. In Christ, you're already justified in front of God. He's saying, where are the works so you can go home at night and say, I feel secure in my salvation. I believe I have true saving faith. If they're going to throw you in jail as a Christian, could they, could they put together enough evidence to convict you? Or does your life look like the unbelievers out there? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? That's the ultimate in the double-mindedness. My mouth professes faith in Christ. My actions don't profess faith in Christ. In fact, James is echoing Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to Jesus' words here. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Scary. Scariest verse in the whole Bible to me. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. It's not doing the will of the Father that gets you into heaven. It's the doing the will of the Father that is the proof that when you say, Lord, Lord, you mean it. As bad as our society is getting and as far as it's pulling away from Christian ideals, the exciting thing, if there is something exciting, is it's going to cost you something to say, Jesus is my Lord. You won't be able to just say on the phone survey anymore, hey, what religion are you? Ah, Christian. It's going to start to cost you something. Hey, we got that on record. He's one of them. Persecution always brings out true faith. Many will say to me on that day, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, these all sound like the people who have the great faith. They're doing the really showy, impressive religious activities. These people are stars on TBN, right? They're the rich and famous in evangelical circles. And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's the key. You who practice lawlessness. You, you practice it daily. You, you have a habit of it. It's not you messed up, you slipped up, everybody's going to still commit sin. What's the pattern of your life look like? Is it a pattern of ever-increasing putting off lawlessness and putting on Obeying God's law, that, that would be the marks of true saving faith. I worry for these people, these, these teachers who, who say, Lord, Lord, and we, we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in their name because they draw a crowd. And people listen to them. I'll name one name in particular you might not be familiar with, C. Peter Wagner, the leader of the New Apostolic Reformation, former professor at Fuller Seminary. Wrote a book arguing that the office of apostleship has not ceased, that there are modern apostles. And guess who he says is one? <laughs> he is. And he teaches that what's going to bring revival is if we perform signs and wonders. Because that's how the early church justified their claims of apostleship and authority. So it works like this. If we 
prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name, then people will come to Christ and then they'll listen to our teaching. And often the teaching is divorced from the Word of God because I'm, I'm now prophesying and hearing directly from God. Very dangerous. And not that non-charismatic evangelicalism doesn't have its black eyes, but proportionately and statistically speaking, you see more scandal coming out of that environment. And it's always embarrassing to the church and an embarrassment to Christ when the unbelievers are just waiting for those showy Christians to stumble. And they do stumble, and they stumble and fall big time. And then they teach forgiveness all of a sudden, and their people put them right back into leadership like a week later. Look how forgiving we are. That is not the kind of saving faith Christ taught or any of the apostles. Saving faith ought to produce works of righteousness. The the kind of faith that doesn't produce good works, James says, is a dead kind of faith. And he says this twice. He says it at the beginning of the section and at the very end. And in Hebrew writing, that's very common. It's called an inclusio. Here's the top piece of the sandwich, the bottom piece of bread, the stuff in the middle is what I really want you to concentrate on. So he's telling us not that there's two ways of salvation. He's saying there's two kinds of faith. There's a faith with works and a faith without works. And the faith without the works is a dead, useless kind of faith. So that's his thesis. And it's really the thesis for the the whole letter. If you're really a Christian, if you really have saving faith in Christ, this is what your life ought to look like. This wholeness, this consistency. You don't say one thing and then do the opposite over here. Again, it's not faith versus works. It's faith without works versus faith with works. James uses this this device where he pretends he has somebody arguing against him over here. So this letter is going to be written, distributed to all the churches, read out loud in church. James is he's um, assuming somebody will disagree with him. So he's going to have this little debate. And so it's a device called an interlocutor or or an interlocutor, depending on where you put the syllable on the, you know, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But someone may well say, okay, who's this someone? Commentators don't know, but most assume that maybe that's James. He just didn't want to call himself in the first person. Well, James might say this. So he's maybe speaking about himself like in the third person. So there's this guy, and he says, I have faith. And there's this other guy who says, I have works. And the first guy says, all right, well, you show me your faith without any good works, and I will show you my faith by 
my good works. In other words, one guy's bragging that he has faith, and another guy's bragging that he has works. And James is saying, Yeah, well, you say you have faith, but I don't see any works that go with it, so I doubt you have faith. We use the chair example a lot. You say you believe that chair will hold you up, but why are you still standing? Why won't you sit down? You know, and he's like, I'm, well, You sit down. <laughs> that's, that's not faith. It's like two coaches, basketball coaches. I have faith in you, my star player. Even though you're in a bit of a shooting slump, I have faith in you. And the other coach says, I have faith in you too. And now there's five seconds left on the clock and we're down to the final shot. And one coach says, I have faith in you. Here's the ball. And the other coach says, hey, I have faith in you, but we're giving the ball to Billy. (laughs) Who really has faith? And we could take that beyond these sports analogies and get really personal, right? You say you have faith in the God who instituted marriage. You say you have faith that when God put you together, let no man separate. You said your vows before God and these witnesses. You believe God can restore and heal your marriage if the two parties will act in sacrificial love and ask forgiveness and receive forgiveness. Yeah, I believe all that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten married. Then why are you separating? What happened to your faith? Oh, I have faith. I'm still a Christian. I'm not saying those who are divorced are not Christians. I'm saying we do things that are double-minded. We say we believe this, and then we don't... Well, I gave it a chance. It didn't work. Well, you keep giving it a chance, and you keep believing in it, and you never believe the opposite. You never believe that life will get better if I do the opposite of what God has commanded and revealed in His Word. You cling to the truth, and you keep believing in the truth, and that is faith, saving faith. It's the faith, yes, that justified you before God, but it's the faith that keeps on saving you, keeps on blessing you, keeps on honoring God. Now, I know some folks can come up to me later and say, boy, I was in this terrible situation. I'm not saying there aren't terrible situations that God doesn't allow you out of. But I think we run and give up on faith way too fast. In fact, you never give up on faith. God does make allowances for divorce, and you believe in those allowances. We could take this into an infinite number of examples of where our faith gets put to the test and we say we're Christians and we have faith in God and we have faith in His goodness and in His way and we love His Word. And I go to church every Sunday and I take notes. I have binders full of notes and I've gone to every one of Pastor Andy's classes and I know Grudem's systematic theology backwards and forwards. They asked me to write the church doctrinal statement and then you see someone living and you're like, uh, uh, how can you do that after you've said you believe all that? That is what James is talking about here. He's not telling us to look around and point out who's not saved. He's saying, go home and examine yourself 
that you be in the faith? Do you see fruit in your life? He's going to give us four cases from the Old Testament that all of his hearers would have been uh, able to follow. Four cases. I got this from this commentator, Daniel uh, Doriani, from his uh, Reformed Expository Commentary. Four cases. Case number one is going to show us that false religion is useless towards man. Case number two, false religion is useless towards God. And then he's going to flip it and go the other direction. Case number three, true faith is useful towards God. Therefore, case number four, true faith is useful towards man. This is good Hebrew parallelism. Twos, two groups of twos here. We already read case number one. This is one we can all, that uh, resonates with all of us. You see a brother or sister without clothing or in need of daily food, just the basic necessities of life. And somebody who says they have faith in God or the faith in Christ says, Oh, you poor thing. Go in peace. Be warmed and be filled. You know, I'll pray for you. I'll pray that God meets your needs for the basic necessities of life. I'm not talking about somebody who comes and says, I just got a pay cut and now we, we can't you know, upgrade our vehicle like we wanted to and you know, we're going to have to live in these apartments instead of this house. And We're not talking about that. And we do get people who come in and want help from the Deacon's Benevolence Fund from the community who live better than I do. And they, they, want, they want help. And so we help them in a different kind of way. Now, this is somebody who, who is like the Good Samaritan category. They need immediate help. And you say, I have faith that God will help you. And God's saying, yeah, and you're the one who's supposed to help. That's my plan. You thought manna was going to just fall from heaven and help these folks out. He says, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that kind of faith? How does that glorify God? How does that show love to the world? It doesn't fulfill the royal law. Remember James called it the royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. Wouldn't you want help if... You are without clothing and food? I mean, again, we understand I'm the kind of person who doesn't really like to ask for help and it's going to be extenuating circumstances. I'm at the end of my rope. Suck up my pride and ask for help kind of thing. We're not talking about the guy who expects everyone has to help me and this is the way you will help me. We're not talking about that. Although even in that case, James had said, and we saw last week, mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't assume everybody who's asking for help is trying to work the system. Don't jump to that conclusion right away. Have a heart that wants to help, but is willing to go the distance and find out what the right kind of help will be. Because sometimes helping hurts unintentionally. 
Case number two, then, false religion is also useless towards God. So he says, you believe that God is one. Hey, you've got great theology. Way to go. You do well. Guess what? The demons also believe that. And they shudder. Commentators aren't sure if the shudder means at least they have fear of God, and you don't even have fear of God. You just kind of flaunt your, your freedom, your lawlessness. You say, God is one, and He saved me. Justification by faith. Good works mean nothing. I'm going to go out and flaunt my Christian freedom. I'm free to do whatever, you legalists. Well, the demons also believe God is one, and, and, and they do evil, but they shudder before God. They tremble before God. They, they're afraid of His majesty and His holiness. Not enough to repent... Other commentators believe that what James is saying is these demons don't have a saving faith, obviously, because they're demons and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And they know that. They know they've lost. They know they're doomed. And so that's why they shudder. The, the point being, you could have the right theology and not really have a loving relationship with God. Look at the demons. Their correct theology doesn't result in any useful thing towards God. They don't honor God. They don't glorify God. They don't worship God. So does that mean we don't need proper theology? No. Sometimes you hear people say, I don't need your doctrine. Doctrine, you know, produces legalism and it doesn't produce good works and it doesn't produce love. And No, we need both. We need good doctrine so we know how to love. We need good doctrine so we know who God is. We need good doctrine to know how to respond to Him rightly. We don't even know what love is without doctrine. So James says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Uh-oh, he said fool. Now, he didn't come right out and call us fools. He, he says foolish man or foolish fellow, the New American Standard alliterated it, foolish fellow. But it's foolish man in the Greek. It's like the worst thing you could say to somebody in James's day, in an honor-shame culture, to call someone a fool. So he's really grabbing our attention here. If you think that saving faith doesn't need works then you are a fool, he's saying. If you think that true saving faith won't have any works to demonstrate that it's true faith, you are completely misdirected. 
Are you willing to recognize the foolishness of that? That's what he's saying. Come to your senses. Now he's going to turn the corner and say, now here's what true saving faith should look like. True faith is useful towards God. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? There's that line, justified by works. It's scary. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. But let's remember, when was Abraham declared righteous? When he put Isaac on the altar? No. How about when he was circumcised? No. Actually, James tells us in verse 23 when Abraham was declared righteous. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So if you think James is teaching salvation by works, then he just contradicted his own argument in the same section. So we know he's not teaching justification by works. He's using the word justified in a different meaning. Was not Abraham our father vindicated by his works? Anyone can say, I believe in God. And then God put Abraham to the test and he said, put your son, your only son Isaac, on the altar. If God had told Abraham to do that right away. I don't know if Abraham could have passed that test, but Abraham walked with God for a long time. Did he trust God when it came to believing that God would provide him an heir in his old age? No, he didn't. He said, we're too old to have a child on our own. And and so he had a union with his slave. Hagar, his wife's slave, and they had Ishmael. So actually, we see a demonstration from Abraham that his faith was pretty wobbly at the beginning. I tell you, tell you when I first came to Saving Faith, I was on fire. I thought I could fix all of my problems immediately, and many of them went away miraculously, praise God, delivered immediately from some pretty entrenched sins. And then some weeks and months went by and and had a dose of humility. Boy, this sanctification thing is harder than I thought. I hear the the chuckles out there. So you've, you've found that out too. Keeps you humble, that's for sure. You see that faith was working with his works And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or matured or brought to fruition. So think of it this way. You go to the store and buy apple seeds. Now, I don't know what apple seeds are supposed to look like. Well, I guess if I open an apple, I could see what the seeds look like. But you buy a packet of seeds, you don't know that they're actually going to do what they're going to do. Unless you're some kind of geneticist with an electron scanning microscope and you've or PCR testing, and you can look at the genetic uh, composition of the seed. You put it in the ground and you wait. And a shoot comes up, and, and then it's a tree. And you're like, I guess it's an apple tree. I guess it's saving faith. It had the right label on the package. 
but where are the apples? When I get an apple and I can bite into it, then faith has been perfected by the works. So our works are like the fruit on the tree. Until we see some fruit on the tree, you can't assume that your faith is the saving faith kind of tree. I had the right package, the right label. I put it in the ground. I did everything I, uh, the preacher told me to. Is it true saving faith? Where are the works? And then when the works come, you don't boast in your works, but they give you some assurance. Oh, that wonderful, blessed assurance. And the assurance is even better when somebody in your life who knows you well goes, Wow, you were here, now you're there. What happened? Only God could do that. That's the most wonderful kind of assurance when you see fruit in people's life that only God can get the credit for. They give, give God the credit and the glory for giving me the faith to leave a comfortable job as a, a teacher with, with benefits and a pension and put our house on the market, the house we thought we'd live in forever. And, and go with your wife do to deliver the day you start seminary. With a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. <laughs> That's not me. I, don't, I could not do that on my own. My wife could not do that on her own. In fact, we went kicking and screaming. Almost. We were crying when we left our house. You know, it's your house. Put Isaac on the altar. But faith said God will either provide a substitute or he will stop it at the last minute. And... Gee, are we living in a house now? Yes, we are. Everything's fine. In fact, it's better. It's way better than it was before. That gives me assurance. It doesn't puff me up with pride, although when I'm weak, it does. And you've probably felt that too. And you check your heart and you say, no, glory to God. God gets all the credit for that. Case number four, true faith then is also useful towards man. So Abraham did something useful towards God. Not that God needs us to do things for him, but God commanded us to do, commanded Abraham to do something for God, and Abraham was able to follow through. Now we're going to go from like the, the, the hero of the faith, Abraham, a righteous man, the father of Israel. And we're going to go all the way down to the bottom of the social strata. Rahab the harlot, a pagan, living in a brothel in Jericho between the outer wall and the inner wall of, of Jericho. And the spies come in, right? And they find Rahab. And Rahab hears that there's this God, this true living God of Israel, and he's powerful. And Israel is just wiping out everybody in their path as they move through Canaan. And she wants to be spared, her and her family. And she puts her faith in God. But it'd be easy at that point to tell the spies, yeah, I believe in that God. If it means my family will be spared. And then they hear Jericho soldiers are coming. Oh, hide the spies, hide the spies, hide the spies. The Jericho Have you seen this, those spies? Where are they? 
Tell us and we'll let you live. Okay. Now she's going to put her faith in these people who can spare her. But instead, she demonstrates she has saving faith by telling them they went that way. And so the soldiers go running off looking for the spies that way. And she had hidden the spies on the roof of her house underneath um, plants that were drying up there. And she sends them out another way. And she puts a cord of scarlet out her window to demonstrate she has saving faith in the God of Israel. So, true faith was useful towards the spies. She risked her life to spare their life because of her true saving faith in God. She demonstrated her faith. Her faith was vindicated by her actions. From the most noble Abraham to the most lowly Rahab the harlot, everyone is saved by faith, and everyone must demonstrate their faith with appropriate works. Yet it's not the demonstration of your faith with your works that justify you before God. It was your faith that justifies you before God. However, we, we, we don't want to hide from the words of the Bible. We don't want to hide. Look at James 2.24. He says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's pretty well spelled out for us. And if you didn't have any rest of the Bible, you would think that salvation is by faith and works. And then Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. They sound contradictory. And yet James knew Paul, and Paul knew James. We know that from the book of Acts. We know Paul had to go report to the Jerusalem council, and James was the leader of the Jerusalem council. We know that Peter references Paul's writings in his epistle. They knew what each other was writing. They knew what letters were disseminated. We don't see James saying, Hey, I know Paul says this, but it's faith plus works. And we don't see Paul saying, I know what James is saying out there. And yeah, I know he's Jesus' brother, but let me tell you, He's got the whole works things wrong. It's, it's justification by faith. No, they knew what each other was teaching. Paul has to address legalism. The people way over here that think it's their works and their adherence to the law of God that gets them into heaven. James is correcting the mistake on the other end of the pendulum. People who say, I've got faith, but there's no works to demonstrate their saving faith. Praise God, he gave us both teachings, both letters. In fact, most of the time when Paul teaches on justification by faith, he knows some people are going to abuse that. So in Romans, what does he say? He says, so if we're saved by faith, and God's grace is just glorified when he covers our sins, should we sin all the more? So God can pour out more grace and get more glory? What's he say? May it never be. Which is the nice way of translating that work. Which has the, in the Greek, has the word Gehenna in it, which is hell. It's kind of like him saying, hell no. 
No, no, you don't keep on sinning so God has more opportunity to pour out his grace on you. That's not how you show your gratitude to God. He says, you were slaves to sin, now you're slaves to righteousness. You don't keep on sinning. So Paul did correct the air of libertinism in his letters. And for that matter, James has already taught that salvation is a gift from God. Remember James 1.17? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, no double-mindedness in God. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Remember, brought us forth is giving birth language. He birthed us. We are born again. It is a gift from Him. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. There's the fruit. It comes after the salvation. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2.8, probably the verse you know better, one that you've memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Can you be any more clear than that? It's not by works. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you truly are created in Christ Jesus and you're a new creature in Christ, the good works ought to be coming. They ought to follow. You should look different than you were before Christ. Maybe you did good works before Christ, but now after Christ it's good works with the right motive. Not out of pride and not out of fear. Not out of pride, look at me and the great works I do. And not out of fear, I better do some good works. I better do some good works or people aren't going to like me. I better do some good works or I'll be embarrassed in church. I better do some good works or God might not let me into heaven. It's, I'm doing good works because I can't help but do good works now. Look what Jesus has done for me. He gave his life for me. i I, I got to do something to say thank you. I can't go back to that old life and those old attitudes. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'd like to see you try and stop me from doing good works. So then what's the key then? How is it that James can use the word justified and it sounds like he's saying we're, we're justified by our works? We're saved by our works. The answer is, is that justified doesn't always mean saved. It has two meanings. And he's using both meanings in the same section. And Paul did the same thing in Romans. Romans 3.22 Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, saved, declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice in that context, Paul doesn't talk about our works contributing at all to our justification. Okay? But then, if you go up in Romans 3 to to verse 4, 
And actually in verse 3, he says, well, is God a liar? And there he says, may it never be. There's that word again, megahenna. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What does the word justified mean there? Vindicated. You, you're in the, the, on the witness stand and there's the jury and you're giving testimony and all the people's exhibit A through whatever and you're justified. You're justified by the evidence. And then the judge says, not guilty. He just justified you, declared you justified. So you're justified by your works and then you're declared justified. In this case, when it comes to our salvation, you're justified by Christ's works. His works of righteousness and His work on the cross. And then, well, how do we know you really have faith in Christ? My good works, my good fruit is justifying my faith. But when you link them together, it's I'm justified and then there's good works. So, James is just skipping all the way from here all the way to the natural, logical conclusion, which is, in a way, your works save you. Wait, are you confused? No. Your works didn't save you. Christ's works saved you, but your works vindicated that you have the saving faith necessary to be saved. Jesus uses this same word in the Greek, to mean vindicate in Matthew eleven sixteen, He says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. So we, played a, we sang a dirge, you know, like a sad song, and, and then you wouldn't mourn. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. He was a very somber man. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Eating locusts and wild honey. And and the people who didn't want to believe said, that guy's crazy. He's got a demon. Look at him. I'm not going to listen to his message because look at him. So then the Son of Man comes from a, a, a regular family, Carpenter's family. He's going to weddings, he's going to parties, he's eating and drinking, he's making merry, he's changing water into wine, and he's preaching the same gospel of repentance as John the Baptist, but now the people say, oh, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. The King James says, a wine bibber. (laughs) He's a wine bibber. Yeah, a Justin Bieber, (laughs) nice. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We're not listening to him. And so he says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, or wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's a little proverb. It means, hey, here's some wisdom I'm going to teach you. And and you might say, oh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. I'm not living like that. I'm not listening to that wisdom. Okay, let's give it some time. You live your way. I'll live according to this wisdom. We'll see. Wisdom will be justified by her deeds, will be vindicated. 
So there is precedent in the New Testament for justified, that word diak- diakosune, sorry, in the Greek, to mean vindicate or justify. I think when we first came to the church, Pastor Andy was preaching through James, and I remember him using that same verse. That was seven years ago. I'm going to skip to the, the, the last slide. I have some other slides here that just gem- demonstrate Jesus, James, and Paul all teaching the same thing. But I think, you've got, I think you've got it. I think you've got the point. But I want to close with this. Do you agree with Jesus, James, and Paul? And does your life agree? Do you, you might agree here, but does your life agree Or are you clinging to one of the three false gospels? False gospel number one is my good works lead to my salvation. There may be somebody here today who's clinging to their good works for their salvation. Your good works are nothing but filthy rags to God. If they're done with the wrong motive, if they're done to bring glory and honor to you, then they're worse than neutral to God. They're working against your chances of getting saved, not for your chances of getting saved. This is legalism, and we may say, I don't believe in that false gospel, but the tendency of the human heart is in our weaker moments to slip back into works salvation. And we get back into that pride and fear. Well, I know we're all saved by faith, but I'm more saved than other people. Or I'm more deserving of my salvation than other people. Or it's you're doing works out of fear. If I don't do enough good works, I'm going to lose my salvation. God's this terrible taskmaster. I'm afraid of him. One day he's happy with me and then tomorrow he's mad at me. I'm saved. I'm not saved. I'm saved. I'm not saved. That is a terrible burden. False gospel number two is faith plus works leads to my salvation, which almost sounds like what James is preaching, but it's not what he's preaching. It's like, well, my faith saved 90% of me, and then the 10% of my works kind of pushes me over, gets me across the finish line. That's legalism in disguise. That's the person who's, oh, no, it's all Jesus. It is all Jesus. It is all faith in Jesus. And... Um, But boy, look at the good works I'm doing. He couldn't help but save me. I mean, he was looking down for people to elect. And he was like, look at that. Look at that resume. I want him on my team. No, he picks the losers for his team so he gets all the glory. We're 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 it. We're the bottom of the barrel. We're, we're the kids in P.E. that get picked last. We're, we're the ones where they say, tell you what, you can have the last two picks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing God accomplishes anything working through us. Glory to God. And then the false gospel number three, just my faith 
leads to salvation, which is true, but it's salvation with no works. This is libertinism or what we call easy beliefism or Jesus is my Savior but not my Lord. And there's some seminaries that teach you can make Jesus your Savior and then later make him your Lord. And they say, well, the thief on the cross never had time to make Jesus his Lord. Well, he didn't have time and he was kind of nailed down. You know, that's not, I mean, tell me that's not your only example. That can't be your proof text. If he had a chance to to do good works, I think he would have done them. So, the true gospel, faith, leads to salvation plus works. Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. When you truly realize God's amazing love and grace... The response of your heart is to produce good works and now your faith is brought to completion and you can have assurance of faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the glorious gospel. And yet we understand that our fallenness wants to twist and pervert what you've made so clear and so easy. You saved us on the cross. We just need to accept the gift and trust and obey. And our works are evidence of our faith. Lord, may we never be the kind of Christians that go out into the world and the world says, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything of it. It's empty, it's dead, it doesn't produce anything good. Convict us each this week, Lord, where we need to cling to the true gospel. Cling to you. Cling to Christ. Not put our confidence in the flesh or in works. And at the same time, not use our salvation as an excuse for laziness, apathy, or even worse, lawlessness. Thank you, Lord, for this teaching. We need it. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.